Welcome to Mythic, a podcast where we explore meaningful living through the power of myth. I'm your host, Boston Blake. Hey there. I'm so glad you've decided to listen to this episode. My guest today is mythologist and depth psychologist, Dr. Andrea Slaminski. And the conversation you're about to hear is mind-blowing. At least it blew my mind. Not only does Dr. A present a new vision for women at midlife, but she also draws on some stats that point to an imminent sociological and psychological shift as women live longer than ever and control more resources than at any other time in human history. Now, no, no more spoilers. Here we go. Hello, Andrea. Welcome to the podcast. I would love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Thank you for having me, Boston. I'm really excited to be here. We both have similar interests and backgrounds, and that's really exciting for me. My name is actually Andrea Modisette Slominski, which is horrific, and nobody can remember them. Nobody can spell them. Nobody, when they see them, can pronounce them, which <laughs> is why I just go by Dr. A, which if you're podcast people are looking for me. I'm a woman's midlife coach. I went back to school when I was 55, right in the middle of my midlife shift and got my master's and PhD and studied archetypal and death psychology and mythology. And my dissertation was focused on women's midlife shift and women's mythology. So from there, I defended my dissertation in the fall of 2019. And I'd been coaching for about three years and I rebranded my website and I rebuilt it and rebranded my business and everything was terrific. And then I launched it in January and COVID shut down the country in February. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know what? Everything's for the good. I have a really big office. I can fit about eight to 10 women in here to do workshops and that kind of thing, which was what I was doing. And I was doing private coaching as well. And the whole COVID thing just forced me to learn the online methodology really quickly. And so over the period of the COVID shutdown and those sorts of things, I developed a program called the Women's Wisdom Village. I offered over 40 free online gatherings for women to come together and take a look at how myth and women's mythology and ancient stories and fairy tales and folk tales can inform our lives and help us get through the difficult times that we were living through. It was great. I was able to really learn the digital thing. And so now I offer a lot of digital classes. I still do one-on-one -on -one distance coaching on Zoom. I do one-on-one -on -one in person coaching now in my office, of course, because now people are coming back together again. So it, it's been a journey. <laughs> it sounds like you've learned a lot, both technically and like forward and deeper. Mm -hmm. What's an example of that? How can we apply myth? How can women's myth, myth in general, to our current situation and to navigating it? Because, of course, I work with women, I'm going to talk about women's lives, right? Myth, of course, as is applicable to everyone. It's applicable to men and women and entire cultures and the world and the cosmos. But I can't work with all of that. It's interesting because women, when they go into the perimenopause shift, and it's amazing how little information there really is out there and how many of my clients either tell me how much they didn't know or that they had to Google it because they thought they were ill, mentally ill, broken, 
like losing their mind, whatever, as they start to go into the shifts. Going into the perimenopause, midlife menopause shift, women go through what I call a triple transformation. They go through a physical transformation, which of course is the perimenopause menopause shift. And it's pre-programmed into our bodies. It's not a disease. Okay. Can it be difficult? Yes. That's a whole nother conversation, but yes, it can be difficult. So perimenopause, menopause is the physical one. Then there's the midlife shift, which is the psychological shift. It's the shift within psyche that is also pre-programmed into the human experience of living a life. We have our childhood or what I'd call maiden. We have our householder years, our teens and our twenties growing up. And then we shift into what I call Regency, which includes midlife. And if we are the same person at 45 that we were at 20, then we've skipped some growing and that's okay. You can catch up, but the psychological shift is pre-programmed into our psyches, into our souls, into our collective unconscious, just like the physical one is. And then the two together, the physical and the psychological shift together combined to create what I consider to be a spiritual shift mm-hmm. where women reassess who they are, what they want to do now, and basically their meaning, purpose, and belonging at this time. And the thing that's really miraculous about this, and I'll never get tired of talking about this, is that in the year 1900, white women statistically were dead by 51 and women of color were gone by 43. Now, There have always been, since the time of Plato, individual old women or groups of old women that lived past 80 to 90 to 100 or in the medieval fairy tales, the witch at the edge of the forest that lived to 120. Yes. But boomers and late boomers and all the women coming up behind us are the first women in the history of humanity to live past menopause as a cohort It's never happened before. It's never happened before. Our lifespans have increased white women by a third, women of color by double, more than double. And so now there are entire generations of women living past 50, 52, 55, whenever women died. They never made it completely through the menopause shift. They never made it to the new settle out of the hormonal profile, the new normal, right? after the midlife and the menopause and the triple shift and the seven realms. So we're the first women to do it. We're moving into this new life stage that's like another 30 years. There's no maps. There's no models. There's no examples. So we're creating it as we live into it. And the opportunities for women in this life stage are enormous. And it's an opportunity to recreate ourselves for ourselves after spending in the householder years, say from 18 or 19 to say 45 or 50, tending our families, our friends, our colleagues, our aging parents, our siblings, our careers, whatever it is, the householder years are crazy busy. We're developing our own homes. We're developing our careers. We're going out. We're learning about ourselves and the world and hurrah, we're moving forward and we're going to achieve our goals and doing whatever we're doing. So by the time women get to 45 or 50, a lot of them in their careers, unfortunately, still hit a glass ceiling or they're seen as 
aging out of their careers because if they're seen to be looking older or if they're seen to be having indicators of perimenopause and menopause, it's, oh, their value is decreasing, which isn't true because we have all of our life experience, all of our career experience, our growing wisdom. It's just a shift we're going through. And basically the opportunity there in going through this is that at this time, if you had children, generally you have empty nest or you're about to have empty nest, unless you have boomerang children, which I have. (laughs) That's okay. I love them. Everybody needs a little support. California is really expensive. So it's empty nest. Maybe you hit a glass ceiling at your career. Maybe you decide you want to do something different. Maybe you decide you want to make changes in your life. The triple shift works together in the physiology and the psychology of women to turn their focus from outside back to themselves, Mm. back in to say, now it's my turn. Okay. What do I want to do now? Where have, now that I've been tending everyone else's garden for the last 25 years, it's about time to, to tend mine and see what do I want to do for me now? And our shifting hormones basically nudge us to do that. Our shifting psyche nudges us to do that. Our shifting spirituality or spiritual understanding of our meaning, purpose, and belonging shift us to do that. And it's uh, it's big and it can be challenging and it can be, of course, there are losses in aging. I'm not a, a complete Pollyanna. Of course, we get older and we get creaky and we could get sick and we have problems and your body changes, your metabolism changes, your skin changes, your outlook changes. Yeah, there are losses, if you want to call it that, changes as we grow older. Of course, there are. But within each woman's capacity to recreate herself in her circumstances with what she has, with what she can work with. Some women choose to blow up their life completely and do something new. And some women just choose to spin their cocoon right where they are and do their transformational work in place. There's no right way to do it. There's only individual ways to cross this universal rite of passage. And to get back to the original question, which was how does myth help us do this? All of these mythic stories that have to do with women show us that we're not the first women to go through this. For example, if a woman is having difficulty, say with empty nest or difficulty with a reunification relationship with a child or a daughter, whatever, the myth of Demeter and Persephone is a chest of pearls of wisdom. That myth shows us so much of the grief that women go through in the separation phase from their children, or that I should say some women go through, not all women. It's not a universal experience. And it also shows us the need for individuation and separation on the part of the daughter. And then it shows us the need for reconciliation and the rebuilding of a completely new relationship, which then ends up being a dual goddess, mother and core, entire Elocinian mystery foundation. So that's one example. There's the myth of Ariadne and Theseus. If a woman has ever been disrespected, abandoned, left behind, lied to, led astray. And I could just list them and list them and list them. When we look at these myths, not just from Greek, but Celtic, Hindu, African, Native American, you name it, the mythologies around the world are just full of these stories, which are maps The stories are maps and they've left mile markers and they've left symbols and they've left indicators and they've left all these little tidbits 
like Hansel and Gretel with crops to follow metaphorically through our hard times and be able to see that, oh my gosh, I'm not broken. I'm having an experience that's unique to me because it's my experience, but I'm writing one chapter in this amazing human story of what it means to be a woman and live a life. And this is my chapter. This is my experience. And so I found that more than anything, cracking open these ancient stories that have these universal nuggets of truth in them really gives people the opportunity to, you know, we have our problems and we're like under them and we're kind of wet blanketed by them and it's hard to see our way out of them and it's hard to get our mental wetware to to jump out of the rut. But with myths and being able to look at these stories as human experiences, we get to look at it from the top down. We don't look at the problem from underneath. We get to say, oh, let's look at the universal aspect of it. Let's look at the myth. How can we look at this myth and understand this narrative and how my story parallels almost exactly or pieces of it? We even just take pieces of it. So it's really, it's, I have to say, I don't use this word very often, but it's magical. Mm -hmm. It really is magical. And I love it. I just love it. I love everything about myth and story. And in working in my different programs, like in the 12-week heroine's journey, initial coaching launch thing, we do a lot of that work. We do a lot of that work. We figure out where we are exactly. At, we're at the top of this mythic midlife mountain. I don't know about you, but it's kind of that thing. Of you're living your life and you're working hard and you're doing your thing and you're trudging along and you may not have hit it yet, but because you're pretty young. It's like you're climbing a mountain and it's a forested mountain and it's a steep trail and you got a heavy pack. So you're paying attention to every footfall. You don't want to trip over a root or a stone or whatever. And the trail's narrow. You're hiking up it with your family and your friends or your colleagues or whatever. And then one minute you're hiking the trail, the next minute it's level and you take a step out and all of a sudden it, you're blinded by the sun. You're at the top of the mountain. You're in the middle of a meadow. Like you can't quite really see where you're supposed to go and the trail disappears. And that's that midlife thing of, is this it? Wow. I thought I would have been a different place by now. I thought I would have done more of this by now. I thought I would have accomplished more of that by now. I thought it would feel different than it does right now. Why does my life that felt so great last week feel like a too tight shoe this week? You know, why, why does everything seem sort of, and I always used to say to my friends, I said, yeah, I was at the train station when my ship came in. I missed it. <laughs> There's so much in here, but you're answering what I was going to ask. So I'm finding very much like I just hang back. This is so well considered and so well thought out and so well constructed. One thing I just want to catch is how profound it is that for the first time in recorded human history, how often in the unfolding of time, does humanity get to explore a new archetypal chapter? Archetypes are embedded, but to your point, myth leaves clues to how to awaken, how to individuate, or that individuation happens at these moments in our unfolding. What you're describing here, that an entire cohort of women around the world, this is a new contribution to human consciousness to the collective, and it is necessarily individual, and it is part of the collective. It is a cosmic connection point. 
And the thing I want to ask about before we get too far away is the word regency. You use that word and it rings. When you say regency, what are you talking about? Briefly, as in antiquity and even up through the early 60s and 70s in in women's liberation movements and in goddess movements and goddess spirituality, from antiquity to then, women were considered to be living in three life stages, maiden, mother, and crone. And so what I researched and what I argued in my dissertation is that, as Jane Ellen Harrison says, the goddesses reflect the lives of the women not the women reflecting the lives of the goddesses. So as we evolve, emerge into this new life stage, we necessarily have to be in four. So I call them maiden, householder, because I think it's more inclusive because not all women have children. Women live alternative lifestyles. They have partners. They focus on all kinds of things. I just like it better. I think it's more inclusive. Householder and then regent and then wise woman. And I chose regent because, and of course, my dissertation chair, Chris Downing, made me choose bookends. She said, you must choose dates. So I said, all right, I'll choose 45 to 70. And now I put a plus after those 70, because I think a woman self-designates when she leaves Regency. But I really felt that because this is the opportunity for women to recreate themselves for themselves, to take decisions, to run their own life, to be fully capable of having sovereignty over everything, their body, their decisions, their lives, their path, their goals, their priorities. I really thought regent was a good word because some other scholars who've come before me, of course, whose shoulders I stood on to write my dissertation, liked the word queen for this stage because I'm not the first one really to talk about this. Four Stages of Lives has been being kicked around since the early 60s by different scholars and academics. I don't like queen because to me, I like queen. It's okay. But for me, I don't feel like a queen. I don't have servants. I don't have unending supplies of money. I don't have a treasury that I can dip into. I don't get to travel wherever I want. I don't have the freedom from from worry about anything. I'm living a life. I'm actually in there after the ecstasy, baby, the laundry, as Ram Dass said, you know, to me, queen is really set aside and a specialized sort of pampered sort of image to me. It's a it's an image that implies a certain level of wealth. Mm. And it's removed from the daily life. The rules don't apply the same way to a queen or a king or a prince. It's royalty and it's symbolic in a different way. So regent allows for this inner experience of sovereignty. And the regent traditionally in, if we're going to go to traditional OED definitions, a regent is someone who holds the ruling space For someone who's not old enough, like the prince is too young to rule or the princess is too young to rule. So the regent rules until they grow up. And so to me, the regent woman holds her throne, her seat of power, I prefer to call it, her seat of power for her wise woman to come. So regent women, I have this crazy thing that I wrote called the regent's manifesto. And it it basically talks about what it means to be a regent woman. And it just basically says that you're in the midst of perimenopause and menopause and midlife and that you acknowledge it and, you know, that you choose your way forward. But a regent woman to me desires, chooses to have sovereignty in her life or desires to have sovereignty and chooses to be regent. And her power isn't given to her by another authority, so to speak, if we're talking about 
Regency. And that Regent women can lead, they can administrate, make decisions for herself and plan her own and achieve her own priorities and goals. I just really liked the word. I really thought it, it felt like it embodied the potential of the life stage. I have a question about that. So something that occurred for me in listening to you talk about Regent, before you said holding the throne for the wise woman to to take it, I was thinking of it in a different direction, hold for the collective of women to hold space in the world for the younger generation to be able to manage the challenges that we face. Oh, I love that. Like holding the human family here or the human civilization which has been the sort of province of this, honestly, this sort of overactive hero who won't put down the hero's quest. And that is such a restless energy, but for the regents to be able to hold it, to have that in the conversation, it just changes the way I think about the human family. You just changed the way I think of regency. <laughs> you just opened my eyes. We need to do this more often. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic idea. And certainly this first generation of regent women is laying down all of the metaphysical paths for the women who come behind to follow. And not that you want anyone to follow your path, but certainly thinking of of the myths and all the different fairy tales and folk tales and symbology and all the different beautiful things within archetypal psychology, learning how to utilize them to make the most of Regency is an example that I think is definitely one that's going to be good for women to follow. And the other thing about Regency, and I'm very passionate, my my passion is climate change, because I think it it's over the top of everything else that needs to be fixed. It's the only problem we've never faced before. Everything else has a place somewhere in history, but climate change is something that is actually existential that we don't have a pattern for. Yeah, it's an apex predator that we've created. (laughs) So climate change, and I find this very interesting, and I know from your background that you'll get some hooks into what I'm saying, is that the turn of the 20th century, right, 1900, not only did women's lifespans begin to expand, it was the birth of psychology. It was the birth of the the real expansion of archetypal psychology with Freud and Jung and all that came past them, came with them. Tony Wolfe, Marion Woodman, all the great female archetypal psychologists and psychotherapists that began writing and working. And It was the rise of the acknowledgement of, if you want to call it the feminine, there's the feminine and there's the masculine. And archetypally, we all have both of them inside us. It's not a gender thing. I want to just make that really clear. But that the archetypal feminine, if we look at the work of Jung, and if we look at some of the, uh, the myths and the way the gods and the goddesses and their stories came from the psyches of the people of those times, we see that the feminine is so tied to the natural world. And these, these ideas that are supposed to be from the feminine archetypal baseline, such as compassion, empathy, creativity, communitas, communication, are all of the attributes that we need to address climate change. 
And I find it interesting that women are getting this entirely new life stage. We're living into this entirely new life stage when it is archetypal female energies that are so deeply tied to the natural world at a time when we have to save the natural world. And I think that's more than a synchronicity. I just went to the myth of Acteon and Artemis, where Acteon's punishment, he leaves the city of Athens and he comes upon Diana or Artemis bathing in the pool and she turns him into a stag and he's torn apart by his own dogs. And so what this myth demonstrates to me is an anxiety about the natural world. Like it's you're safe inside the walls of Athens. You're safe inside the confines of masculine civilization, even though, you know, overseen by Athena, but still like this is Apollo's law that we're dealing with. And so to step into the realm of the feminine is to risk being torn apart, but that's also a dissolution of the ego because now you're in the realm of the feminine where different rules apply, different structures are required, and those structures are not even able to be perceived by the arch- well, by the human through the masculine per- perception. Am I communicating? Am I getting Yes, back? no, I'm following you. I'm following oh, you. I'm, I haven't really worked this before, so it's, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, making this up as I go along. But this idea now that what's required, that it is not an accident that this cohort is coming up, that there is this century where the feminine is taking hold. A lot of my work is around the Wonder Woman archetype, which is a flavor of the Artemis archetype, but that there was the, there were major inroads made while the masculine was distracted, but not distracted, like World War II is happening. And that created an inroad for a new participation Mm-hmm. of the feminine and the culture. And so we're still riding these waves. But it seems to me, like you said, we're, we are now dealing with an apex predator of our own creation. I don't know if you watched Game of Thrones, but the White Walkers were yeah, dealing yeah. with this. And we're running out of time rapidly. And the solution, I don't know if it's a solution, but the ones we need to be listening to are in this realm of the feminine, the goddesses, the women who are living those stories. I'm going to stop talking. No, it's interesting to see when you look at like Forbes magazine, pretty much you couldn't get more more Apollonian (laughs) than that. But they have these amazing nods that they do to the feminine, the world's 100 most powerful women or Forbes 50 over 50, which of course interests me. And if you go and look at these on their website and they change them every year, they update them every year. These women are in every sector, Hmm. politics, culture, entertainment, business, I don't know what else, healthcare, nonprofit, philanthropy, whatever it is. And our power and influence is growing, but it's, I'm waiting for the geometric explosion because, and this is the thing that's, that, that's, has so much potential in it. By 2030, in the U.S. alone, there will be over 87 million women over 45 in the U.S. alone. So I think to myself, what could 87 million women accomplish if they worked together? Like almost anything. We could change politics in two election cycles. 
We could get shit done. We could fix stuff. I don't know. It's just what we don't realize as a people group is that because we've been so busy during our householder years, we're like, oh, right, is that we control over 85% of U.S. domestic spending, discretionary spending, billions of dollars, everything from homes to the furniture in the homes, to cars, to vacations, to school supplies, to clothes, to groceries, to landscaping supplies, to whatever it is, right? And we have political power. We have, because of our numbers, we have economic power. We have cultural power. And we're growing into this this new life stage. And we have to learn how to grab this and use this power for the greater good. Something you just said a moment ago is in two election cycles, which you say it with that perspective, that's eight years. A lot can be done. But eight years, the way we think of it now, nobody's thinking more than a month ahead. And for women in the stage of Regency who are now looking at such a large percentage of life in the rearview mirror, being able to see what eight years looks like and what's possible to be able to coordinate resources and goals on that type of scale, which is something our, our government can't think, Pat, can't think more than two years ahead. Just that perspective alone is that can change the game. It can. And it's interesting because whether you want to talk about being red or being blue or being whatever, or some purple somewhere in between, I don't know any woman who doesn't want her children or her family's children or her friend's children or her sister's children to grow up with clean water, clean air, healthy food, good education, good health care. Throw away political affiliation. I don't know any woman who would say, I don't care if my sister's children and their children grow up in a climate ravaged world. I've never heard anyone say that. No, no. And so it comes down to the fact of you have people like David Attenborough and Al Gore and all these people and hundreds, thousands of people ringing the bell, ringing the church bell and the enemy is here and it is us. (laughs) The thing that's also difficult about it is it's like no matter how much you and I recycle, no matter what kind of light bulbs we use, no matter how much solar we have on our roof, individuals are not going to fix it. It has to be large, industrial, corporate mega change. Mm -hmm. Yep. Systemic use. Yes. And it has to happen quickly. Mm -hmm. And the only way that's going to happen is for the people to insist that it happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because in capitalism, money and profit is the driver. And it has its own psyche and its own persona and its own demands and its own needs. And it doesn't lend itself to listening to the small person. Mm. So it's an interesting situation. And I think archetypally, mythologically, it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. It's going to be very interesting because unfortunately, for a couple of conferences that I presented at a few years ago, I wrote and presented on climate change. So I thought people really needed to know a lot of people. Nobody wants to read those books. It's not a fun read. What 
life on earth will be like if the temperature rises four degrees and where you'll be able to survive mm-hmm. by land in Nova Scotia. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but just to talk about it and say, this is real. And this is something that we don't want to wake up one day and be, oops, mm-hmm. oops. Oh, I'll be dead soon. It won't affect me. And that piece, it won't affect me. You said you have boomerang children. So you're connected to the future of your children. I don't have children. It's my nieces and my nephews. And I look at the world that they're going to grow up in and thinking, no, I'm halfway through. I, and it is highly unlikely that it will not get pretty twisted during my lifetime, during mm-hmm. our lifetime. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I'm a huge optimist in terms of what's going to happen in the next 20 years. So it becomes about really riding this ship to get through the choppy waters of time yeah. so that we have a civilization on the other side. We've got some Mad Max stuff ahead if we don't. Yep, we don't. absolutely. It's like trying to course correct on an enormous aircraft carrier. Mm-hmm. I like that analogy. It's like you can't do it in one second. And the systems that we're working with or trying to change are so enormous. So yes, I think it's going to get wild and wooly in the next 20 years because the carbon's already up there. Mm -hmm. It's already there. We're going to hit two degrees or close to two degrees if we don't batten down the hatches hard and soon. Yeah. And look at, I'm just in the last year, Mm -hmm. the flooding, the tornadoes, the blizzards, this winter in California, this, I've lived here for 29 years. This is the wettest, coldest winter we've had. Now, okay, maybe that's not hotter, but weather is not climate. People have to remember weather is not climate. And then in the summer, it used to get cold by Halloween. Mm -hmm. And we were outside swimming past Thanksgiving. We were having 90 degree weather in November. So things are changing and it's, In geologic time, they're changing very fast. I'm back in the Artemis myth again. This actually looks like when patriarchal mentality steps into the space of the archetypal feminine, but which is the realm of weather, wildness, and that this is what it looks like to be torn apart, that Mm -hmm. this is how that goes. The, The stags are are the weather. That's what's happening. What are some of your insights into how we might move forward? And I'm going to pull myself out of this. How women in Regency might adapt to this time? I think it to start with, I think it's a put on your own oxygen mask first. Hmm. Because now granted, there are some women that sail through this perimenopause, menopause thing and have very few indicators, very little trouble, have just sail right through it. And that's fantastic. But that's not, I would say that's maybe 25%, maybe, of women. And then there's, and there are differing degrees of difficulty with it. Some women have more difficulty with the physical. Some women have more difficulty with the psychological. And it's not like one happens and then the other starts. They overlap. And they spiral together and the sure tapestry of your life begins to unweave. And even though 
the threads are unwoven here. On this side, something new is being woven, but in the middle, you're living in the tension of everything you knew, believed, and thought was going to be the way it was forever is falling apart. And there's some kind of liminal space that you're in, in terms of what kind of rite of passage transformation is going to happen. I think that as women go through these changes and they come to look at the difference between growing and living into the next cycle, into the next age of being human, maybe giving less focus to the patriarchal ideals of what a woman should be or should look like or should act like or should be like. And women start getting to that point where a lot of my clients say at 50, you know, I don't give a blank what anybody thinks about me anymore. (laughs) I realized what a waste of time that was. And once they start to get a little bit more sure-footed as to who they are now, then they can turn around and say, okay, and this is what I say to them, what are you passionate about? What is it? Is it climate? Is it healthcare? Is it banking regulation? Is it politics? Some women decide to get active in their communities. Some women start thinking about legacy, which is huge in relationship to climate change, legacy for your family, legacy for your community, legacy for your nation, for the planet. Other women think you know, about, oh, gee, what can I do to serve about service? A lot of women actually coming out of their householder years, then decide to go into politics, which, where if you look at the wave we had in 2016 of women being elected, they were all, I think most of them were over 40. So I think for women to get a sure footing and then decide, okay, where can I help? What's mm-hmm. important to me? Mm-hmm. And for some women, it may just be that they're like, you know what? I'm done. I just want to play with my grandkids and bake cookies and work in my garden. And that's their life. And they have the absolute right to choose that. And I have no judgment whatsoever. But I generally find that women at this life stage, when they get a little bit of a sure footing, then take a look around and decide what it is they want to do. And even if it's, even if what you do is be a good citizen and, you know, you're doing all the right things and vote, oh dear God, vote, vote for the people who are going to, in my opinion, work to solve the problems. Mm -hmm. How can people find you? How can they work with you? What does it look like to connect with you right now? It's pretty easy. You can go to my website, which is, if you can remember how to spell it. <laughs> D- I'll, have it in the sh- I'll have it in the show notes. Okay. So it's drandreaslaminski.com, drandreaslaminski.com. If you can't remember that, you can just look up Dr. A, Women's Midlife Coach. I'll come right up on the Google. Oh. Cracks me up. <laughs> the Google. It sounds like my grandmother. I do one-on-one coaching. I offer classes, a nine-week class on the triple transformation and the seven realms of change that women go through during Regency. Basically, you're changing body, you're changing self-image, you're changing feelings, you're changing needs, you're changing goals, you're changing priorities. It's a group class. And so we go through and work through one of those realms each week. And then I'm actually having a great time right now teaching an eight-week deep dive as a book study into women who run with the wolves. And I'll be offering that probably every eight weeks. Once I get through one cycle, I'll start it again. You can find me on Meetup, 
through finding female friends of greater is the greater than symbol 50 finding female friends greater than 50 i offer little mini intro workshops there but basically the best way to get in touch with me is just to hop on my website you can send me an email you signed up for my email list and that way i'll send you the newsletter and you'll know what's coming up and what's going on i'm on different podcasts and blogs like facebook instagram i'm on linkedin youtube Different, YouTube has some of my Women's Wisdom Village from the COVID period, some of those videos. Yeah, I'm pretty much everywhere like everybody these days. <laughs> Great. And I'll be sure to include all of the links that you've mentioned will be in the show notes. So anybody who wants to work with you can start there and go into the wide world of your work. Dr. A, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been an inspiring, exciting conversation. It's rare that something really new comes along and blows my mind. And your work in this area, this idea of a cohort of women, a cohort of humanity, bringing something new to the collective. Just in time. (laughs) Just in time. (laughs) That's today's show, folks. Thank you again to my guest, Dr. Andrea Sliminski, and thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. A's upcoming courses and offerings, check out this episode's show notes for a link to her site. You can find them at mythicpodcast.com. That's also where you can find more episodes and mythic resources and sign up for the newsletter. Speaking of which, I'll be using that newsletter to share details about upcoming free webinars, where you can dive deeper into myth and personal development and meet others who share your interests. So if you want those deets, please subscribe. And if you like the show, please share it with a friend and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. I appreciate you and appreciate your support. Until next time, journey on.